I'm Catherine Nichols, here with Isaac Butler, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1985, and we're going to be talking about Stephen Sondheim's musical Sunday at the Park with George. We're going to be talking to Rob Weinert Kent, who is the editor of American Theatre Magazine and a frequent contributor to America Magazine as well. In the show notes, we'll post some of the things that he's written about Sondheim, because he's done a lot of really interesting things, including a very in-depth interview with Sondheim himself. Um, for a summary of the musical, it's divided into two acts. The first one is about a fictionalized version of the painter George Seurat working on his famous painting Sunday Afternoon on the Island of uh, the, the Grand Jot. He's uh, in conversation with his partner, a woman named Dot, who's modeling for him, um, but they're near the end of their relationship because um, George is so focused on painting and Dot understands that her life, um, she can't just spend her life waiting for his attention and his kindness kind of jerk, um, especially since she's pregnant. Um, She leaves him and he finishes the painting. Um, And there's also little vignettes of other people who are in the painting. Um, And then there's a song sung by the figures in the painting about boredom and discomfort of being there in in this one position forever. Uh, And then the second act begins in earnest. There's another George, who's the original couple's great-grandson. and he's also an artist, but he's a conceptual 1980s artist who um, has to spend a lot of time working on getting funding and technological collaboration, electricity, and like cooling tanks and stuff for his uh, conceptual light machines. Um, and he's lost artistically and emotionally. He knows he's not doing anything really new or worthwhile. Um, in that second act of the play, he talks to his grandmother, who was the baby that Dot was pregnant with in the first act. And then um, it, eventually he actually speaks to the ghost of Dot herself about making a good life and um, making good art. So, on to our conversation. So, since this is our musical episode, um, we'll have Isaac Gill burst into song, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm just going to keep bursting into song. Until the estate sues me. <laughs> um, so I was just saying before we hit record on this that um, every time I come up with any framework for trying to understand this, any framework where I think, okay, I sort of see how it all fits together, um, it it became unsatisfactory very quickly. And I realized that it was actually doing something larger and weirder every time I felt like I kind of had my brain wrapped around it. That's just me starting out with a declaration of ignorance. Um, <laughs> listeners, please keep listening anyway. Amazing. Can I ask Catherine uh, yeah. before, were you familiar with the show at all before we decided to do it for this? Like, had you seen it or listened to it or? Uh, no, I had sort of just bumped up against it a few times, but I hadn't actually really taken time with it. And I just couldn't believe how rewarding I found it. Um, yeah, and you I, watched the original, right? That's that's the yeah, sort of I watched, our our sort of shared basis is the I, I think it was for PBS, right? The the TV yeah. broadcast of the original, it's like it's currently rentable on uh, Apple Apple TV for three bucks. It, yeah, yeah. The, and it has uh, Bernadette Peters and Mandy Tinkin, and then yeah. I also was reading some of the things that uh, that Rob just sent us. Totally, totally. Uh, so, where do you? come to this show from rob 
Well, I, I was I recall um, my friends in the eighties uh, playing the video. I, I don't think I watched it live. I think they had the video from the PBS broadcast. They also Sweeney Todd was also taped around the same time, a little earlier, but um, those are both on PBS. And I I confess I found Sweeney Todd so horrifying I couldn't watch it <laughs> at the time. I was like twelve or thirteen. I just was not into blood, and uh, it's since become my favorite Sondheim show. But and so, and Sunday the Park was I could see what it was doing. And it just, but it didn't really touch me, <clears throat> but it was, it was, it was years later. I think I watched it again years later. I had, did not catch up with it this time. Um, I, I saw the 2008 revival. It's a British production, which had some good elements, but was overall not, it was a little twee, a little thin. I don't know if it really nailed the, but, but, and then, and then I've, I, uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal one, the one, the Sarn of the Pine directed one with Jake Gyllenhaal and Annalie Ashford a couple of years ago, which I think is still circling the runway for London and might come back to Broadway. I think it needs, it deserves a larger audience. Um, I do think what, what you alluded to earlier about how it's doing something deeper, weird. I feel like this is true of a lot of Sondheim shows, maybe a lot of, a lot of classic works that are, that they, that they really seem to change and mean different things to us, depending where we are in our lives. And I think, you know, there's this wonderful book that James Lapine just put out a memoir of making this show and both he and Sondheim feel the same way about it. The, 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 the show has come up and against they've, they've come up against it later in their careers and, and felt it was, and, and felt it was, it had, it, it was meeting them at a different point in their lives that they not prophetically, but that if there's more in this work, the strange <laughs> experiment that these two artists did when they, as, as their sort of first meeting, sort of a, it's a story in many ways of their, of their courtship of each other as much as it is Dot and George. Um, this experiment they did, they put so much of themselves into it from these different points of view that I think that we were all able to get a lot out of it years later. And and again, so were they. There's this great anecdote where James Lapine is stuck on a show later, years later, and he just happens to turn on the TV and it's on. And he hears a lyric from Move On he he calls Steve because and Steve's also stuck with us with a show and they both of them say yeah this is what we, this is the, we're talking to our younger selves are talking to us <laughs> from, from within this show um so yeah I mean I I I mean I can go on a bit I, I could tell you that the, the, the thing about this show is is the second act people have problems with the second act they've always had problems with the second act um and then second act problems are you know Isaac will know and then maybe you know Catherine too they're 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 endemic to writing plays. It's like a scrabble problem where it's harder to, it's easier to start a story than to try and figure out how to finish it. And that's a second act problem, but that's not the kind of problem that we're talking about here. This is the same issue with into the woods, their next collaboration. They, they've constructed a, a beautiful play in the first act, which has closure in both cases. And then what they do is they, they don't, they don't have second act problems. They construct problem second acts, second acts that take apart, or deconstruct or or flip flip around what the, what they accomplished in the second act. I think that a lot of people, including myself, didn't you know had problems with the with the second act for years until finally that revival a couple of years ago. And I could talk more about why I think it finally cracked it. But I'm, I'm part of why it might have cracked it. And Sarna Lapine talks about this in an interview I did with her, the director, is is the time that we spent with this musical. She doesn't think that. If her production had come out originally, it, would, it wouldn't have cracked the necessarily cracked the second act any better than 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 the first one did. It needed this time and sort of in our bloodstream culturally to like 
to, to, to reach that level. So um, that's really interesting. I, yeah. I think my reaction to it, I felt like the second act really answered a question that I had at the end of the first act. And that question was why this painting? Hmm. Because there's any number of paintings and there's any number of painters, like they could have chosen anyone, any, painting, hmm. you know? And I was like, what is interesting to them about this painting and about this painter and um, this sort of putative muse that they invent dot. Um, but, you know, presumably any painter would have somebody like her in his life, you know? Um, why is this the one? Because hmm. in some ways it felt really um, like a surprising choice because it's uh, the painting is, it doesn't have a lot of physical motion. It has a feeling of weight mm -hmm. to the characters, but it doesn't, you know, it's not like um, Toulouse-Lautrec, you know, they're mm -hmm. not dancing around. <laughs> and, or even the other Seurat paintings that are um, like at a circus or something like that, that, that seem more obviously like, that they would belong on stage in the musical, you know? Um, and then it's such a, uh, it's such a solitary, lonely painting in a way. And the story of his life is lonely. It's a story of not selling paintings, you know, uh, and dying young. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I was like, what, what is the thing that is connecting? them to this and that feels urgent and that feels like there's a story that they need to tell because it, it has that feeling of personalness that um, Isaac and I were discussing outside of this because I was like how do I talk about art that feels personal without saying I believe that there's some biographical piece of information that will unlock it and settle all the mysteries I'm not talking about biography I'm talking about that feeling of like a personal urgency um that this that this musical really had and it connects to that particular painting and i was like why is this the painting that felt so important to these particular people at this time and i felt like the second act somewhat it didn't answer it in a subtle way but it did address the question of i guess how lonely and isolated this artist is when he is sort of not able to recognize his collaborator and he's not able to connect with the only person who really seems to understand his work. And he really is letting the critics get in his head. Yeah. At the same time, there's something transcendent about his ability to put his attention into the dogs, into the voices of the people out the window, you know, that there's something so beautiful happening inside his ability to work, but his lack of connection with Dot is it's a problem that he never solves in the first act right it's solved instead by the connection that art makes through the generations right it's the the works solves that connection because it eventually connects to his uh great-grandson george yeah. maybe great-grandson george right and um yeah absolutely i mean it's interesting because you know it's very hard particularly in the wake of sondheim's death to resist the biographical reading of this show as a way of kind of decoding it. I don't really believe in decoding art. I don't really like biographical readings. I understand why Sondheim was so hostile to biographical readings that he would always just say, no, these are characters. My collaborators came up with 
them. I'm just can imagine myself into them. But you know, Mandy Patinkin in the the Merrill Seacrest biography of Sondheim, Mandy Patinkin says George is Steve, just like very openly. It's like George is Steve. That's what the show is about. And you know, um, and it's very easy to. And you know, Sondheim had a very uh, fraught would be actually a nice way of putting it relationship with his mother. And he says in the Seacrest bio that you know he started reading up on on. George Surratt, and it's like the one one of the few things we know is that he had a secret life that he hid from his mother, and he was like, "Oh, great! He'll make a perfect example. He'll make a perfect person for a show, you know." Mm-hmm. And that he and and he would say that you know, and it's embedded in the musical, but he also has said this in interviews that the um, interplay of the dots to create color. Well, to create order, design, composition, balance, light, <laughs> harmony, right? As as he says in the show, that that seemed to him like a perfect metaphor for songwriting. And once he had figured out that metaphor, it kind of unlocked the show for him. Mm. And so there's a way that on a psychic and emotional level, this is his most personal, most biographical show, even though the details of his life don't line up. And in fact, it predicts in the relationship between George and Dot in the first act, a relationship Sondheim would have a decade later that uh, with a younger artist who eventually, you know, they they had a very fraught relationship because his life was already, Sondheim's life was already arranged around his life and his friends and his creation of art. And this younger man who was trying to figure out who he was couldn't fit into that. You know what I mean? So like there's, it's very easy to just go there. Um, but I do think one of the smart things that they do, as you say, Catherine, is they use, because, uh, you know, Lapine obviously feels very passionately about this too. I think doing this painting was originally Lapine's idea and it's a childhood favorite painting of his is that they, they have to find something beyond that. You know, like they're not going to do a musical. That's just the ballad of James and Steve. They, they, they need to find something that is about the making of art, the creation mm-hmm. of art, the reception of it, what it is to be an artist, what it is to know an artist, what it is to love an artist, what it is to just be affected by art and, and do that in their sort of complicated way. Um, but what's very strange is as, as Rob says, you know, they kind of nail that in the first act. And then the second act begins with this like pretty savage satire of the art world, Mm. um, uh, with hot up here and putting it together. Um, that then, you know, like the second act is tonally this very complicated, thorny, um, it's fun. It's funny in a way that the first act isn't, but it, it, it also resists, the normal kind of emotional catharsis we want a lot of the times from the the end of a musical until the very last second when he's there on the on the on the island and he and dot the ghost of dot have that conversation hmm. yeah i isaac i i'm I gonna disagree with you on one thing or push back on, sure. on one on one element i i remember mandy saying that in the Meryl secrets biography but um i think as you alluded to it was lapine's idea to do the painting yeah, you know he he once joked to me like everyone assumes it's Steve maybe because the guy has a beard, but um, <laughs> but like it 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 is a story of of and he's a he was a graphic artist who so he, he approaches things visually so I I feel like so much of the vision of the show it, it it's a it's a marriage and again yeah we're, we're, I don't we're, disagree we're, with that yeah we're we're um we're commemorating Sondheim so I don't want to take the take the the thunder away from I I do think in in, in a way that's unique to among Broadway shows. Sondheim can claim authorship or at least co-authorship in a way that's just not 
no shade on other musical theater composers, but it's just his his he's a dramatist in in song, you know, and I've I've written about that before. But I do feel like um, there's a lot about James Lapine, and and that's interesting. Sarna Lapine, the director's niece, uh, who directed the revival. She was a little bit uh, wary of telling me what her sort of secret sauce was to sort of making it work better. <laughs> I think it's something to do with knowing her, her, her uncle and, and family, the family tree, like, like uh, uh, again, not biographical details about his life with, but children and art, all, all that stuff is in there. I think, I think also the, the just, just to get into why I think the, the revival worked it, it took for granted that we knew the painting and we knew the original production to some extent, and it didn't recreate. It was not about recreating the dazzling painting on the stage. It also, because it didn't have Mandy Patinkin in it, had Jake Gyllenhaal, much different temperature actor. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say um, Mandy Patinkin is the perfect first act George. I think he's like the ideal. You can't make a better one. And I think he was acting too much of a different part. He didn't know what to do with the second act, even though they sort of solved it. What, what Gyllenhaal and the production in general did was make it a seamless whole, like a seamless garment. That was basically the George in the first act was in a sense, really the second, it, the second act was just a manifestation of the same person. It wasn't like this, look, I'm all new now. I'm in jeans. You know, I'm, I'm a different guy, you know, it, it, and it, that just brought home the closure. I think the other thing that Sarn Lapine pointed out to me was it really is a story of a partnership, this, this play, a partnership that, couldn't happen and in part because of the of the circumstances of the time the sort of trope of the artist muse and the lonely genius and it, it it's it's trying to break through that and i think that giving full weight to dot and the way that she she ends up teaching george right which another um, which another dramatist actually had to come up with the the that that they were having trouble with dot uh and yeah. john guare of all people the playwright john guare was like well what if dot's learning how to read and become a oh, writer. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. What is she doing while she's standing there the whole time? She's not a character right now. You have to give her something to do. What if she was a writer and she's learning to read? And and Sondheim was like, that just unlocked the whole show. Because right. like they just did not know what she was going to be doing while she was just standing there for hours in a park getting sketched. Hmm. That's really interesting because I I felt at the end of the first act like um the like it leaned so hard on those tropes of like the lonely genius and like the ideal circumstance of creating art is one in which everyone leaves you alone you know and that's clearly not the life of the theater like people Hmm. aren't in theater to be left alone um and the somehow i was like I understand the dream. If you're in the middle of the, you know, the art world sort of satire scene that you're describing, Isaac, the frustration of kind of being caught between funding and, you know, who do you have to talk to in order to get this thing put on stage and uh, um, trying to make all the critics and audiences sort of see what you want them to see. Um, Maybe you have a dream of being in a lonely garret, but you aren't actually you're not actually going to be in a lonely garret ever if you're in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, somehow, I just don't believe that we're going to finish this show without understanding something about theater, not just about painting, you know? Mm-hmm. And that I felt like in the second act, there had to be something that was like, something that that George in the first act couldn't reach by mm-hmm. being a painter. 
that had to do with other people. Hmm. And I think that that's somehow in the second act, um, even if it's like, it's not easy, it's not always, right. fun, but that there's something, some way in which by rejecting Dot and their child, he's rejecting something artistically important as well as like, it's your kid, you know, like all that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I I I think that 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 I think that George in the first act and that that relationship can be read a bunch of different ways. One of which is of course like yes, he destroyed himself and he destroyed his life, but he created this great work of genius and isn't that an interesting tension? And I think we probably find that tension less interesting now than in 1985. But, you know, like that tension is still there and is and is fascinating, but it is also um, uh, um, but it is also a thing of like, how do I put this to me? The musical is suffused with a kind of amb- ambivalence, of course, because it's on time, but the kind of internal conflict that I think writers feel all the time of like, you have to be in the world <laughs> and then sometimes you just want the world to go away so that you can, you know, like do your thing. Right. And both of those states being by yourself, writing and being in the world, being a you know, out in the world, they have their costs and their pains. And you think that by switching between the two, you'll, you'll, you'll solve that problem, right? The things that pain you about being alone, well, you'll solve that. And then you'll go on the world. Then when that gets to be too much, you'll go back on, but it doesn't actually work that way. It's like neither of those states, actually, there is no perfectible life, right? There's a problem with either of those states. And I think the show is is really uh, digging into that in this really deep way. Um, the connect the other the other thing is that you know one of the forms of solace, one of the forms of humanity, and I, this is the thing that I find very moving about the second act, particularly when I watched this version because I actually hadn't seen this version in a really long time, like since I was in high school and my girlfriend showed it to me and I didn't get it then. Mm. And um, uh, the thing the second act does that I think makes this a play by older people, (laughs) maybe for older people, I don't know, (laughs) is the sense that like one of the ways you're not alone is that there is a tradition and you are Mm. part of a tradition. And whether you want to reject that tradition or not doesn't matter. But like there is a tradition, there is a history and you are there and those people are with you all the time. And that's actually what can comfort you when you are alone. And that is actually what can allow you to go out into the world and do your thing is that there's these ghosts, essentially this long line of ghosts behind you. And that to me is what's going on in this production in that second act. Um, Like that's the healing that the present day George finds the problem isn't over I'm, you know like problems are never solved in Sondheim shows really but you know like 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 the, the what he gets to is he meets the ghost of his great-grandmother and the ghost of his great-great-grandmother because the mother then walks on at the end and he sees himself as part of a legacy whereas the chromalooms the the art that the laser light shows that George has been making are a rejection of tradition to some extent. They're sort of framed explicitly as a rejection of tradition. They're as much invention and engineering 
as they are studio art, right? He requires a windmill to generate the power and a, a pool for a cooling station. And, and uh, Brett Spiner famous later as Lieutenant commander data is his, is his engineer who makes these things, you know, like, like, uh, uh, so he has to rediscover how he fits in to both his personal and professional artistic histories. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's the framework that basically that's the, the framework that I was like, oh, my frameworks are too small. Like, so there it is. You got it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's funny because the production I actually saw of this live is the very bad production from 2006. Is it that the hey, Minier, 2008 to the, the Minier Chocolate Factory did yeah. uh, at the at the roundabout, which is terrible for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons why it's terrible is that they replaced the actual set with animation it's all george interacting with projected animations of the painting coming together and you know it's a musical that's very explicitly about the audience's imagination and about how yeah. the eye makes things come together and makes them real and so it did a production that is so hostile to the imagination that it felt like they didn't understand the show mm. um and also it's george was very sincere i mean i think there's a way in which um I don't want to get off on a rant about, about the differences between English and American actors, but one of the things that Sondheim did in part inspired by the actor studio is bring subtext to the musical. And there's a way in which like, if you watch Mandy Patinkin sing, finishing the hat, George is tormented and enraged by the end of that song. If you just listen to the melody, it's a very beautiful song about artistic creation, but the way he says, look, I made a hat where there never was a hat. He's so furious by the end of it because Dot has left him. It's really about his pain at the same time. Mm. And similarly, putting it together, every time Mandy Patinkin is about to sing the words, putting it together, he has this weird full body spasming wince he does where, um, I mean, where there's a podcast, so I can't physically describe <laughs> it, but he sort of like retreats into himself and then back out like he can barely stand to say the words mm. and in the british production putting it together was treated very legitimately it was treated like no the emotional core of the second act is how hard it is to get a grant to do a laser light show mm. right and so like i didn't <laughs> to, and so i thought the problem with act two to some extent because of this production was that it was just about the wrong thing i'm like who gives a shit about whether he can get a grant or not mm. um but actually re-watching this production i was like oh no right james lapine and stephen sondheim no that's not the actual problem of the second act he thinks that's the problem at the beginning and it turns out to be something completely different which is that his his work has gotten repetitive and soulless and he's just pleasing the marketplace yeah yeah, I have to say, putting together has never been one of my favorite songs. I, I respect its function, but um, I find that one it, it's 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 appropriation for a Xerox commercial or whatever it was felt and appropriate. It, I felt, and, felt like an appropriate end for that song. And then it I, was uh, for side by side. Is it side by side by Sondheim where it's rewritten mm -hmm. to be about making plays? Yeah, it's sort of like rewritten to be about the creative process. That version is too treacly for me. Well, I think I think I didn't Barbara Streisand actually get him to rewrite it as well. Like she, she. Got I don't, him to rewrite. I don't know the history of it. Actually, <laughs> you probably know better than I. You're though you've written about him many more times than I. I. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember exactly. But again, that's one where I sort of grimaced through it because I, I, I get the point of it. And again, it's just a taste thing. Um, the the the, the thing that makes this the most Sondheimy musical for me is is the is the French uh, influence on his music. Actually, is the because he talks about Debbie. We've seen Ravel being his two of his great influences, and here he gets to like write a Ravel score for at least part of it. Um, and then putting it together is like jazz hands to, to, for me. But anyway, it's, I'm, that's that's a bit of bit of a side bit of a sidetrack. Um, 
I I I th- I think you're right about subtext, Isaac, and I think that's why why finishing the hat is very easy to read on a surface level is capturing that that feeling, which is very identifiable for anybody who's gets immersed in something and has to keep pushing people away. And it is it is more about the relationship than it is about. I mean, it's about both of them, right? It's not just about the one thing. Um, yeah, it's two things happening at the same time, which I think is what always makes his plays, um, you know, or his music, Sondheim musicals, both rich and complicated to try to find the right framework for that actually like puts all the dots together, right? Because well, everybody's right. always doing two things. One other thing is what you just said about how the character dot didn't come together until they understood that she would not wait. Well, that mm, she yeah. would be doing something while she was waiting. And yeah. the fact that, that that's what he's saying is like a woman that would wait for you is not someone that you would want waiting for you, basically. And I'm yeah. getting the line wrong. But um, but just the idea that they did actually have a creative problem about what she's doing while she's waiting. And that yeah. she does have to be doing something on her own that's like somehow generative you know i don't know yeah. i just think it's interesting that they wrote that into the actual song that was also their creative problem with the character yeah well and also if i remember correctly rob you can correct me if i'm wrong about that finishing the hat came very very late in in the show and in the well, workshop isn't that the song where in the workshop yes. mandy patinkin would come out on stage and th- they did a workshop of it at playwrights horizons for for a public audience mandy yeah. patinkin would come out on stage at that point and they'd be like and here there will be a song and then they would just yes. move on. And he was or sort he, of having a breakdown because he's like, George had like, I don't, I can't understand the character without whatever song you're going to write here. I think, um, and I, th- I think they gave him a little speech of some kind, but it was really unsatisfying. Right. And yeah. so it was late in the workshop production at, at, at Playwrights Horizons. And it was apparently the kind of thing that just lit the whole show on fire. And everyone was like, Oh, that's the moment. Everyone talks about having seen that first performance. It went in like hours, like not quite hours, but, very soon after it was written, like they apparently they went across the street to the Lori Beachman, the piano ran through it a few times and he just did it on stage and blew the top off the, the theater. What's funny is that then the play was picked up for Broadway with the second act that was barely done, like that had been done three times in the workshop. But Bernie Jacobs just and, and uh, uh, the Schubert just said, we want to do it. They were just somehow it's kind of weird to read about it. They were awed by Sondheim at this point, even though right. Sondheim had not really had hits. They just oh he's he's royalty. So this this is where the sort of genius phase had, had, had caught up with him, where people just produced it because it's Sondheim. The, the, the songs that were the latest into the show, to get into the weeds of this, were Lesson Number 8 and uh, Children and Art, mm-hmm. which Sondheim delivered about three days before the, the critics' preview on Broadway. And later, that was where they had speeches where Bernadette Peters would just come out and people were confused. Why is Dot there? What What is she doing? Is that Marie Dot? Like, it was not clear. And th- those songs are so sort of limpid and clear and seem very simple. Those, those songs like children art is just like saying it. It's based on a line from Lapine who, who has someone say that at some point. Um, and lesson number eight is just an amazing, just like little exercise almost of, of, of repeating phrases from the book that, you know, it's, it's all third person. I, those two songs, it's interesting. I, it, it, into the woods also has sort of a, a ballad pileup at the end of its uh, at the end of it the second act where it's got no more no one is alone and children listen like three sort of you know songs that give people closure in a row i think a bad production is kind of weary, weary, weary me because they're just like another ballad that sums up everything but i feel like in in sending the park they're all doing something slightly different uh those three sort of ballads to end the show the children children and art sort of sums up the themes of the show 
And lesson number eight sort of sums up George and where he uh, wants to be. And then, of course, move on, which is, I, I think, an interestingly ambivalent sentiment because I, I sort of looked at the lyrics more closely. I think it's seen entirely as just move on, get on with your life, forget about all this. And I think, as you point out, Isaac, that's not the lesson of, of the second act. It's not, um, there's a line where she says, in move on, she says, concentrate on now. So it's not just, it's not just a, a, a resolution to turn the page and get on with your life. It's concentrating on the on the moment you're in and moving with that. I, I guess it, so. It's, it's an ambivalent thing. I, I feel like the the song that that is the most in dialogue with the first act is the really sort of underrated, beautiful. The song beautiful that he sings with his mother, which is also about time and time passing, and and perceptions of beauty. The mother keeps saying everything's changing, the beauty's disappearing, and, and George is insisting that that's what's beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And that capturing the moment as an artist is uh, inherently, you know, uh, it doesn't make beauty. I don't, it, it, it sort of, it doesn't capture beauty. I don't know. It, I think that those two songs are in dialogue with each other. And also it's an old woman Teaching. I mean, it, it's it's Badat coming back to talk to him. So it's, it's a different different woman <laughs> yeah, yeah. in his life. Um, but I think those 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 two songs sort of resonate back and forth. The, the big ones, the fishing the hat or Ch- children are the kind of the two tent poles in some ways of the of the acts. But I feel like those those two um, are are about time, uh, you know, and about 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 beauty. I'm not really being very articulate about it, but I feel like the songs say it. The songs, uh, the songs sing, sing it. And I also, it, it actually kind of answers one of the questions for me, because I was thinking that one of the things that the first act goes into quite deeply and the second act, to my mind, didn't really deepen or sort of half take back or all the ways that the first act and the second act are in conversation with each other. Um, it felt almost like a lost thread, which is that that quality of concentration that mm-hmm. George has where he is able to see that the, you know, all the different colors in the grass that he's able to see that, um, that the blue dot and the red dot together will make a, a violet dot, something like that, that has never been shown to him that he's able to see by just projecting his attention really deeply into the present mm-hmm. moment. Um, I didn't see that in the second act. I saw them talk a lot more about the interpersonal nature of art you know but i was like well i don't know if i'm missing it or if that's really just the first act more that's know? interesting i i think that's the first act more i mean who knows whether it's intentional or not but but one of the things that's happening in the second act is that the art's no longer about seeing right like right. he's he makes this like or it's not about seeing in the same way that a painting is he makes this laser light show with the names of his funders attached to it you know and people sort of don't know what to do about it it's kind of you know like what he says art is about in putting it together has nothing to do with actual what with what we think art is it's not i have an experience of the world that i want to communicate to you in the following ways it's like which trends have i recombined how do i get this commission like art has become about something else and so that that thread 
sort of gets dropped. I think it, it you could make the argument, this is maybe a stretch, that it kind of gets picked up once he's back on the island because now he's actually seeing something. You know what I mean? Like he looks around. He does see like, that tree. Yeah, because after um after hot up here, which uh, you know, just a unbelievably delightful, weird, unsettling way to start the second act of that show. You know, if you think about people who don't know what the show is, and you you end act one with this triumph, and then act two is like all of them are now complaining. They're in the painting. Like what? <laughs> what? You know, because it's like what happened to this great feeling about how redemptive and art making is that I got from the first act what's going on but then you know like much of the second act when it's in the museum takes place in an all white space where there's nothing to see you know mm -hmm. and then we go back to the island and there's the buildings and the tree and all that stuff so I think you could say that like it's implicitly there but it's I'll be honest that's a bit of a stretch that, um, that uh, hot up here song um, reminded me of the I guess is it like I think third stanza of Bob Dylan's visions of Johanna where it's kind of like all the art in the museum is sort of like, what is this? Is this it? You know, <laughs> you, you and Rob will have to talk about Bob Dylan because Rob's 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 forgotten more about Bob Dylan than all, all of them. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a good call out there. I, I I not to go on a tangent, but I know that Dylan lived for a time at the at the Turtle Bay Townhouse. Well, I Turtle Bay Gardens. I just read I just read that in your piece. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I would just love to know if they ever crossed paths. I I can't imagine what they would say to each other. Um. What, what I also love is all, that all these pop people that are writing shows now, writing musicals, they all read Sondheim's book, like David Byrne read it. And like, it's just weird to think of these people <laughs> reading the, the tablets. I wanted to, the thing you said about concentration, Catherine, I want to look up because it's, it's not hit hard, but you remember in the first act, he, he tells her, her to concentrate. Right. You know, yeah. and or, I, I, she, or she tells herself to concentrate. Like I forget, but there's this great moment in the, when the ghost of dot talks to George, and I don't want to sit here and quote, but I can quote from the script here. Um, where George says, what did I give you? And the ghost of Dot says, many things. You taught me about concentration. At first, I thought that meant just being still, but I was to understand it meant much more. You meant to tell me to be where I was, not someplace in the past or future. I worried too much about tomorrow. I thought the world could be perfect, and I, I was wrong. I feel like, again, that just having that line doesn't make it a major theme in the second act, but it, it's it's there, and I feel like, again, that that's the thing I was trying to articulate about about this sense of passing time and 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 being present in the moment. Um, and I feel like the the immersion that he that he's able to go into and that he expresses in finishing the hat is that kind of that kind of flow state that people talk about, where yeah. you are so in the now, even though what you're doing is cr is creating something that you from a memory from a from an image. Um, and I feel like. Again, that's a bittersweet place to be and just try to spend your life. But um, it, it seems like it, I, I would implicit in that, I think, is that Dot learned concentration from him and that, that helped her as, you know, in her life, helped her learn English uh, or, or learn learn to read. I'm sorry, learn, read, learn there to read go. and um, with the lesson book uh, and that it gave her tools um, for for life because, you know, as much as it seems to be, it does seem to be a, a very clear binary where she says, you're complete. It's very much that artist and genius and muse thing. You're complete, but I need somebody. But I think it's implicit that later in life and in all our lives, we also need resources of our own for those moments when, you know, connection is not enough. And we don't, we pour ourselves into the, into connections with people 
but there's also other things we do with our lives and, and there's there's solitude and there's reflection. And I feel like they might've given that, that to each other. Gosh, I'm getting emotional. I don't know why. Anyway, it's really I think I know why. I mean, it's a really emotional text. I, I yeah. was really blown away by it. it. Like you were saying about the, uh, about that concentration being in the moment that it simultaneously reaches that point at the same time as the, your ghosts of your tradition that you're part of and the continuity that will come after you, um, that those are also the meaning of concentration in a way. Mm -hmm. It's like it's simultaneously being in the moment and also encompassing all of the past and the future. And the fact that it kind of gets there, you know, on point is sort of like, that's, it's a good musical, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But it also gets there through this really weird mix of complete directness and elliptical hiding. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, Mm. like one of the things that's, it's true of a lot of Sondheim shows that you're sort of like, what all this stuff is going on. It's sort of relating it elliptically. And then there's a song, you know, like being alive at the end of company or whatever, where it's like, no, no, this is what's going on. I'm going to tell you very directly. Careful. The things you say, children will listen. Careful. The things you do, children will see and learn. Right. And in this one, you know, for all we're describing it, we're describing it in a way like it has a straightforward plot, which it actually really, I mean, as opposed to like, it skips over the surface of a straightforward plot, kind of like a rock over a, that's really well thrown over a, you know, skipping over a lake, but actually like dot and George's relationship falls apart off stage. She finds a new lover off stage. She comes in and she's pregnant. You just sort of know because it's a play <laughs> that it must be his kid, right? right. You know, like the, yeah. the, the, you know, most of the important stuff in their relationship is actually not shown. And in the second act, Marie, the grandmother dies off stage during a set change. And George walks on stage. He's like, well, now that Marie's dead, you know, there's a weird way in which uh, 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 a lot of that stuff is actually happens off stage, much as George relies on the dots of color, you know, from a distance assembling themselves into shades and a picture, mm-hmm. you know, they're giving you these little dots and they want you to kind of assemble this and, and make sense of it implicitly i don't think they're expecting you to like go out to dinner and argue about it like uh, the end of inception or something like that you know <laughs> I, I think their hope is is that you come out of it and you felt something and you've had an experience because your subconscious your your mind has actually like knit these things together in a way that's very satisfying um but yeah i mean you know it, it, i don't know it's hard not to get emotional talking about it it's filled with all of the tensions and weirdnesses and glories of his work like mm. You know, George in act one is so fucking cold and he's such an asshole. And there's all this talk about it. Like he doesn't get angry with Dot when she's like, I'm leaving you. And he doesn't, he just ignores her, you know? And yet the amount of feeling that first act is able to summon up is just titanic. It's so huge. You know, it's so compelling. Um, And you just normally wouldn't do a musical where your lead actor is not looking at your lead actress and is is talking in a monotone as a way of betraying that he's covering up everything. You, you just don't normally do that, you know? Mm. And for all the, I mean, it's a perfect example of how for all his reputation of being cold, cold or intellectual, there's so much deep fucking feeling in these shows that just like, mm. is it, it, they're kind of overwhelming to me, I think. So I actually wanted to ask you both about actors other than Potemkin in that role, because I, I was thinking about how much kind of natural warmth and authority he has. And I was thinking that 
that that created a gravitational, uh, like a, a gravitational valley in his scenes um, in the first act for me, especially where, I mean, I think that it's like a meme now, basically online of how delightfully, I guess, patriarchal uh, Mandy Patinkin is like how much kind of paternal warmth and like manly generosity he has in his manner Mm. in a way that was pulling against the lines that he was reading, but he also seemed so calm. It seemed like he had to be right about whatever he was saying. Like it had to be sort of reasonable, but then I was like, no, you're being terrible. You know, like you're being awful and you won't even let her have a painting when she's going to go and find somebody else to support your child. That's so funny. That's not you my, know. that was not my experience of watching him at all. I was yeah, like, one this, second. I okay, just sorry. Say one other thing, which is that I found, um, I think of, uh, I'm sorry, why am I blanking on her name? Dot. Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. So Bernadette Peters, I think that in general, she is so, she's just like a conductive wire, particularly for an emotion of rage and resentment um, that was so justified mm. that uh, I just felt like there was so much room in the first act for different actors to make different choices that would have come off very differently. Mm. Where it was like, they each were taking their character in such a different direction. I didn't see their, I didn't understand what made their relationship good. I saw them being like him being cold with a secret warmth that made him seem reasonable and her being furious um, with justification. And I was like, like, what are they like? On Sunday morning, I guess it's Sunday. What's what? What about what are like eating croissants together? Like what's that? (laughs) Well, I mean, part of the problem is that we start the musical at the end of their relationship. Like there isn't a good thing left in their relationship, and so we don't that we just never see it just because of when we we come in on that. I don't know. I that's not to me. It's like Mandy Patinkin looks like he's in almost physical levels of pain throughout much of the show that he appears enraged and tormented much of the time. And like George, both Georges are working very hard to kind of keep a lid on that. So it won't come out because, you know, for whatever reason, um, it, I think first act George, because he doesn't want to let people know that they can get to him and second act George, because he's dealing with the people who fund his work. But, you know, you, you see this kind of like, this this you know effort to contain everything and and the and the cost of that um the chocolate factory production I, my memory of the george was he was like this like lovable charming very sweet man and so the show doesn't make any the show doesn't make sense if george is, is a sweet guy in either act no, you know like right. he could maybe have moments of sweetness and indeed george in the second act starts having moments of sweetness but like that it just does not make any sense if you if George is like oh what a great fucking guy that George Surratt is <laughs> you know um, but I also did not see the 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 Gyllenhaal one I've seen Jake Gyllenhaal act on stage before and I think he's quite a actually surprisingly talented stage actor mm. um, uh, and he is very char- overtly charming in a way that like you know Patinkin is very charismatic but the charming you know like what he does with his charm I think it works differently but I'm curious Rob what his george is like so i would just say the the one the one the one song that popped out for me from the from the the 2008 production was beautiful because because daniel evans in the a tender george a gentle george with his mother that's 
song just soared because you know it's a moment where he actually is being he's trying to connect with his mother he really is is trying to to teach her something and and reach her um it's a yeah so he was really good in that part and i think he had his moments in the second act too when a more tender george you know george is opening up his move on was it was moving you know no pun intended um Jake, I don't know how much smart I can say about what Jake was doing. I feel like he does have a, that quality. I think it might be unique to, to film actors who also act on stage. But I think Mandy can do this too, although I didn't see him literally on the stage. He pulls you into a close-up, even when you're in a theater. Um, he, he makes it an intimate performance. And it was at the Hudson Theater, which is not a, a tiny place. Not It's not the biggest Broadway house. Um, and I think his reading was in some ways, very straightforward. I think the, the key to it, as I said, was I feel like he did not make them two Georges. He made it really kind of one George. Um, the second act, George was a lot more assured and just like hands in his pockets, just like, I've got this, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm rocking this, putting it together thing. He wasn't that anxious about, you know, I think it was more like, it was sort of, it was more like he he was, he was confident, but there was something empty and he could tell that it wasn't, it wasn't enough. Um, and I would just say that the chemistry between him and Annalie Ashford told you the story of their relationship. And I would, I would, I mean, it's been a while since I saw Mandy and Bernadette, but again, this is, you know, it's a matter of taste probably, but it feels like those two, I mean, it's palpable chemistry between them. I feel like I can see what their relationship was like, you know, uh, you she, I mean, the dot has a line where I like that in a man, bizarre, fixed, cold, or fixed and cold. <laughs> that she she likes a man who's kind of a, a dick, you know, like, but then she realized she needs she needs more than that from a relationship. And she, her song about Louis is the most ambivalent, like, love letter, <laughs> like, my funny Valentine, like, yeah, he he's kind he of he needs a, me. He, I mean, <laughs> like, like, doe, George, <laughs> right? He's he's not brilliant, but he's he's there. So, you know, um, I think that some of that is in there. Uh, I, and I, I think again, the the key in the in the in the in the Lapine or the Sarna Lapine production, a later one, was Annalie Ashford's dot in many ways. She really does play it and was directed to play a dot as an equal, like almost an artist in her own right. Uh, yeah. Um, and and I think the song that pops out in that version was "We Don't Do Not Belong Together" when she just says. We're at an impasse. We should have we should have been able to make this work because obviously we're really hot together. And also, just like we love, you know, we have this, but we can't make it work because I we need different things. Um, I think that that's where the 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 show kind of. So it was it was in many ways a a, a a sort of giving performance because it wasn't just about him. I mean, his finishing the hat, he did a great job. Again, I can't I I can't say, and I, I think it, it might be a case where I said where it works better if, if the temperature is a little lower throughout, it just pays off better. And if, if, if you, if he doesn't look like he's busting a vein um, it, <laughs> all the time, it's just, that's, you know, it, the too muchness of Mandy Patinkin was like, it, it's, it's in the role. I think this is one thing about uh, this musical almost not exclusively. They, they wrote a lot of their musicals with certain actors in mind and for certain actors, but this one especially as Patinkin in his DNA, I, I feel it's got the two leads in its DNA somehow. Um, Which yeah. is interesting because uh, they were initially very resistant to casting him. 
right uh uh patinkin because um sondheim wanted to write the role for a baritone and patinkin has a massive right. range but his core range is as a tenor that's right and that's patinkin right. didn't want to audition for it because he had done a vita he's been like i'm a leading man on broadway I, i'm not audition i don't need to audition anymore do i like you really you're gonna make me audition and uh but then as soon as he auditioned they were like oh right yes he's the he's the person yeah you do know the story where he was offered the the biff role in the so death of a salesman with Dustin Hoffman and almost took it, but then he said, no, I got to do George on Broadway. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I do think this show benefits from, which is a really, if I remember correctly, a pretty big transformation in Sondheim's working style in order to accommodate Lapine, which is that in the, in the previous eras of his career, you know, you wouldn't really start casting and putting a musical in production until it was, you had an idea of what it was until it was done, not done. I mean, you would then revise it a lot, right? But yeah. you would have like a thing. And Lapine was much more interested in exploring and having work and, you know, like, let's no, let's, we have an idea. We have some songs. Let's get some people in a room and let's figure it out. And let's all yeah. figure it out together and let it grow. And yeah. I, I, I think that's why Patinkin and, uh, 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 Peters are so hardwired into the show. It's, it's sort of like how the um, the physical layout of the globe is hardwired into Hamlet, right? It's like, sure, like sure. Shakespeare is literally writing what they're what everyone's doing, and you know, if you know what the globe looks like, you can actually see what the production would look like. You know, yeah. there's that similar thing because they are uh, putting it together, uh, 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 you know, as part of its process of creation, as opposed to like we're going to go and figure all this stuff out. And then we're going to yeah. come into a room, we're going to tell it to people, and then they're going to do it, and then later we'll revise it, which is just a very different, much more social, to get to circle back to your original point, <laughs> Catherine, much more social way of making um, making a show. Yeah, it, it was it was in many ways the second, like a second or maybe third chapter of Sondheim's career. To He'd had the flop on Broadway with Merrily Roll Along, and he stopped working with Hal Prince and you know, if you read the memoir, and this is, comes out in other places, that Lapine and Sondheim were sort of eyeing each other. They both really liked what they could offer to each other, but Lapine had barely done theater. He'd just gotten into theater and was a visual artist. And I think both he and Sondheim admitted later, like they both had one foot out the door, like, is this going to work out? We're not sure. I mean, it, again, I really feel like some of the relationship you see between George and Dot, obviously in a much different way, is reflected in the in relationship of the two creators. And I feel like Sondheim had never worked, quote, downtown and never worked off Broadway. Um, and so to work at Playwrights Horizons, where they all revered him, but he'd never worked at that level. I think it brought out an experimentation. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I sent you the piece where where Lapine's quote is, it's so fucking arty, isn't it? Like, it's like someone asked Sondheim, like, you know, what, what, why, if this is like this, this integrated score, is there like a musical comedy number at the beginning? Because he said, because it's an arty show, we want to let people know that they can laugh. That there's going to be some, it's going to be funny, like, which is just interesting. There's a, those concessions to sort of audience expectation, um, but it was. I think they were all conscious, even though he'd written plays or he'd done musicals about backstage people, merrily we were along being one of them. I think he was very self-conscious, but also leaned into this is a play about artists. This is a play about art, the state of the art. I mean, that's maybe another reason I, I think putting it together is a little cringy to me. Is just all the that is the state of the art, you know. It's like, <laughs> It's a little on the nose. There's no subtext there. It doesn't feel like, even though George's character has his stuff going on. Um, I actually have a question for Catherine about that, yeah. if that's all right. Oh, you know, because oh, yeah, Catherine, yeah. I do know that 
the evolution of the state of the art over the course of the 20th century is both a preoccupation of you and of this uh, 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 podcast. And I was wondering what you made of it's this shows funny, but, but quite cutting thoughts about what it means to be a visual artist or what it means to be an artist at this exact moment in history of the mid eighties that like, everything's just about concept and funding and how do you recombine the trends in a way that appeals to people, but also they don't realize that all you're doing is a pastiche of trends, you know, and there's, there's just like no room for the actual making of art. Cause everyone's networking all the time. Uh, you know, this sort of very cynical, point of view of the visual art world and of the the capacity for that world to actually generate any good works of art anymore i was just wondering what you what you made of that because i know that that's like a thread of the 20th century uh that that you care deeply about and have followed pretty closely thanks for asking me such a great question hey you're welcome (laughs) i literally while i was watching it i was like oh i bet Catherine has some thoughts about this song (laughs) Uh, no, I think that the Cold War and the question of where art funding is going to come from in America during the Cold War is one of the great, it's one of the heavy hitters of the 20th century, because there isn't really an art world in America before the Cold War. And the training for an art world comes from Europe. And the money for an art world comes from the whole idea of an American empire. But there isn't a um, in in so many arts. There isn't a um, an American form. There's European forms that met African American forms, but there aren't a lot of in the the threads that Sondheim is working with, or in the. I mean, it's happening in France. You know, like this is happening in France with the uh, the Seurat painter painting. I think that there was a sense that the European traditions could be continued in America with American money. And Mm. for a while that was true. And then the cold war ended and nobody knew how to substitute the money that they were getting from like, you know, the CIA, like treating art as a war effort. Mm. Um, And that began to dry up. And the question like, so where's the money going to come from? And do we actually have, like, is there such a thing as an art world in America if it's not part of sticking it to the Russians, you know, aren't trying to make an abstract theoretical political point about how much more free and better we are than communists. What are we even doing? And I think that that's a big question in the eighties. And I think people like, like to blame it on Andy Warhol. Um, Like why is, why is everyone suddenly acting like they have to make a living? Mm. Um, And it's like, I think a lot of it has to do with no longer having CIA money. Hmm. Um, Yeah, totally. And I think that it became so conceptual for many reasons, but the Cold War is a major one. Um, And then just kind of like, wait, so we have to make a living somehow. And all we have is um, ideas and like performance art and stuff like that, that, um, there's just a big question about how you're supposed to sell that, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. totally, that's interesting. totally. Interesting. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to in my head intersect that with what I know of the theater. Cause the, the theater that we know, that we know the, the, uh, the, that I know best, the nonprofit theater really is a product of the sixties, uh, the NEA and, um, and it had, a, it had a sort of 
golden age or a founding age, at least from the sixties to the eighties, give or take. Um, but I think Broadway and the Broadway musical, I don't know where that fits into your conception of, of American versus European. I do think it is among the things you could say is an, you know, uh, a native American homegrown, art, yeah. homegrown, maybe it's better than say native, but homegrown American art form. And I think, I mean, maybe you could tell me better if, if, if you think that the depiction of the sort of cynical wheeling and dealing of the art world, I feel like in some ways Sondheim is just grafting his experience at backers auditions or like trying to get people to fund his shows, which, I mean, for all of the, what I said about people just giving Sondheim whatever he wanted, he had to put a lot of stuff together. Literally. He did have to, he started out his career going to parties and playing songs. Here's some songs to everybody, you know? Um, And I wonder if he's just sort of, I don't think in a glib way, but I think it, I think he that's how he sees it. He sees it as these are producers, and I have to compromise to and and shake hands and you know tell stories to to get their pocketbooks pocketbooks open. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the origin of it too. But I was just interested in you know someone who's who's knowledgeable about sort of the the visual art universe yeah. and and how it unfolds of the you know the and the high art world of of whether you know Sondheim that graft makes sense like what <laughs> what he creates out of it actually feels like yes this does have something to say about art in the 80s because I do think people were saying that about visual arts in the in the 80s do you know what I mean like from what I remember because my grandparents were part of that world you know like but from what I remember it's like people were saying that about like oh it's all just ideas it's well, not beautiful anymore like yeah they still say it yeah yeah it's still like I think a big um just a question in the art world of like how are we actually supposed to pay for this Mm -hmm. Um, because it does require so many objects, you know, it requires materials. And so I think that the question of how it will be paid for is a major one all along. Um, And I think that like that sense of the collaborativeness of theater and that there have to be frustrations about having to deal with other people. And, (laughs) you know, I assume (laughs) having not worked in a theater myself, I hear there are frustrations. (laughs) There are times when it's frustrating. Yes. Um, but like the idea that that would get to the point where they would actually not be able to see somebody who can see what they're doing or, you know, mm-hmm. like George in the first act, like he is not able to see that there is somebody who actually is aware of what he's doing mm-hmm. and, and will sort of follow him in his vision. She just needs, you know, ordinary, like politeness and kindness and like support. Right. Um, and I think that I just think it's a tension inside the um, inside the show of like the frustrations of dealing with other people, but at the same time, you do eventually need other people to be your audience, mm-hmm. right? And, like collaborators, and to sort of be with you in what you're doing. Um, sorry, the I've spent so much time with the ballet world, and I've spent so much time with the visual art world. Um, I actually really don't know about how Broadway funding where it came from and how it came up, you know? Yeah. I mean, American theater in this period in the second half of the 20th century is really fascinating because you have a change in the tax code to create the nonprofit, you know, theaters become, I think originally as educational institutions, I think is the specific thing that they're allowed to qualify for, uh, can become nonprofits. Um, uh, the Ford foundation in the fifties and the NEA in the sixties start providing money to just create almost from scratch, 
a regional nonprofit theater system because you know it's it's it, and a lot of it comes out of the same stuff that's causing Kennedy to uh, uh, start the NEA. You know, like we are a great nation. A great nation deserves a homegrown great art culture. Oh, and also this will allow us to show up the Soviets, right? It's mm-hmm. like those two things at the same time, um, and so. But you also have this additional problem that the Ford Foundation provides this seed money, and there's this sort of promise that the NEA is going to come in with a lot of money and sort of pick up the baton, and the NEA is never funded at a level to allow them to do that. And so the American theater is actually ever since then plate spinning. It's just keeping, like, it's a lot of juggling lots of plates and balls in the air to try to keep the lights on and to keep growing and to last as an institution. And so there's a weird way in which for the entirety of its history, (laughs) <laughs> the American nonprofit theater system is in a weird financial crisis. Like it just never ends. And then on top of that, though, you have Broadway, which is commercial. It's not nonprofit. Although now there are nonprofit theaters that own Broadway houses. That's a whole confusing thing we can get into later. But, you know, <laughs> Broadway is commercial. It's connected to a national touring system where duplicates of the shows that are on Broadway are going to go all over the country. That's how it's distributed. Um, you know, there's a, a small group of, of producers uh, and theater owners who are doing these shows and they are sort of madmen and dreamers in that very seldomly do these shows actually make money. You know, you don't get into theater producing unless you love love it unless you love theater um uh and sondheim exists in that world for most of his career most of his shows premiere on broadway none of them are like the what we think of as a hit today because of the blockbuster shows like wicked and phantom i mean a couple of them run for two years they make money many of them make money but um but many of them flop and he has his biggest flop uh, second biggest flop of his career. Excuse me. He has a huge flop at the beginning of his career that no one pays attention to, but he has a second flop with um, <laughs> Merrily We Roll Along, which is a disaster critically and financially. And Sondheim said it was deeply injurious because he felt like um, the reviewers at that point, it was almost like the theater scene was angry at him and Hal Prince for continually trying to reinvent what they did. It was sort of like, how dare you think you can keep doing this and you'll never run out of support you know, that's, that was his sort of perspective on it. And so he, you know, retreated from that collaboration and he retreated off Broadway to do the, the, the workshop of this, which then went to Broadway. So, you know, this is also his first experience in some ways with the creating a show that originates in the nonprofit world. He's, he, he's, I think Rob, maybe you can correct me. I don't think he'd ever done that before this, right? This is his first show that, I mean, I'm sure he's dealt with nonprofit producers of his work. He had a longstanding um, relationship with the signature theater in DC, whose board he joined for a while and stuff like that. But 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 that all, that's all after, after this period. So, so, so this is like, he's, you know, he's entering a new world that works a little differently because that's, I mean, that's partly because, you know, the nonprofit world is where, to a large extent, I mean, we've it's we did a big piece about these ago. If, if it weren't for the Brits, the nonprofits, and until he was disgraced, Scott Rudin, there would be no new plays on Broadway at all. There would be just right. uh, those are the people who were taking the risks, and the ones who were taking risks on musicals that broke the form at all. I mean, it's not a mis- you know the public theater, which is by its name, it's a nonprofit has been the source of many generations of regeneration of the American musical from course line. To, and Rob, to, will you tell our listeners what the public pays for rent on its building to the city of New York? I don't know. Actually, it was a dollar. Isn't, isn't it a dollar? It's it, it's almost yeah. It's right? I mean, so it's like that's yeah. why they can do it. I'm just saying. Sorry, go right. on, go on. Oh yeah, you, totally. But just to give you no, an no. example of how these things work differently. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they they uh, 
we wouldn't have a Hamilton, a fun home, a hair, a chorus line, uh, runaways. Uh, these productions would not have made it to Broadway where they all had versions of success um, without a nonprofit scene, uh, without, without the public sort of taking a risk on that. Um, in Sondheim's day, they would go to out of town and, and do a show at a commercial theater, you know, in Boston or, or, or Chicago or DC. Um, and the stories of just the out of town stuff, are, you know, those are the, the stuff of lore. There's a great book about the out of town, uh, the work on follies. Uh, Everything is possible or something. I forget what it's called. Anyway, it's a wonderful memoir of that time. And, you know, he, he was always a sort of in that Broadway system but working under the 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 lessons of Oscar Hammerstein, uh, who, for all of his uh, you know the 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 middle of the roadness, the sort of bourgeois middle of the roadness of his the musicals that he became associated with, was really an experimenter. I think Sondheim made a great analogy that um, he was like Eugene O'Neill in the sense that he was always trying to experiment with the form. He had definitely had limitations as a writer in terms of his. But he was able to his his experiments with the form were what was of value, and I really think that's what where Sondheim his lyrics or music are great. Uh, they're in, they're in, in, inimitable in many ways, but what people what we what what the theater and musical theater specifically took from his work, and this is a signature example, of not the only one, is formal of, of like the place can be about anything. They can they can take any kind of shape. They can you can sing about anything. Um, um, it, it's a bit of a license that, you know, people have run away with in a way that you really, you can theoretically sing about anything, but can you do it well? Can you make it a good, a good show? Um, but the idea that you could do a musical about presidential assassins in a sort of review, I mean, I think it's fascinating that in a way, the bookend of his, the bookends of his most successful period were company and assassins, which are both reviews. And one is like taking on the institution of marriage. And the other one is taking on America, like, you know, the entire, the entire project of the American quote dream, you know, um, and they're both reviews and they're both, they're both have a form, which is, I think I've never, I, I like company better than you, Isaac. I think you don't like that book very much, but assassins, I, 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 I think it's great, but anyway, it's like, a daisy, not, not, not just the books, just the book, not the, I know. not the music and lyrics. It's like a daisy chain of, 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 of scenes. And I feel like assassins, I go hot, go hot and cold on. I feel like that show. I thought it was brilliant, and then I thought it was just stupid. And I, 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 but I think it's a, it's a, it, it's the review format. Um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but I, I do think this was in many ways. Again, I, I can't, I can't say because he tried with form, he'd experimented with the form before, but this was a new chapter of, of, of sort of just, and you know, if, if you go from show to show, he doesn't, it's not like he doesn't repeat himself. He doesn't, he almost deliberately wants to do something different the next time. Like you can hear a through line in the sound of his scores and in some of the, the voice of his characters, the way he writes for them. But it's almost as if he said, okay, we're not doing another show uh, about that. And it's not going to have that shape. Um, and I, I, I do think there's a reason why he, he has about a dozen musicals, give or take, I think is, is the number. There's a reason why it's a long career and there's long gaps between the musicals in some cases it's because he was very picky about what, what he thought would actually work. And I think a lot of his process from what I've read is, is shooting down every possible idea of why, why it won't work until he sort of hones and carves out what will work. Um, 
and and, and what's worth putting on the stage. And he, he's also a notoriously slow, slow writer, it, except earlier in his career, he admits like when he really was young and, and like, it was a the danger of like the curtains going up, you know, he either wrote gypsy in about six months. They wrote Sweeney Todd in like a year. It's like, it's right. insane to think about um, how, how quickly they wrote those shows. But then later he, he just, he really spent time. And I mean, the work speaks for itself. I, I, as much as I, I, I'm not a fan of passion. And I think roadshow his final complete show is, is not really, it's a bit of a trifle. There's not a, a bad piece of work in any of it. There's no, there's no like half-assed, like he, he really half-assed that one. He just, you could tell that he put his full, his full prowess into every, and you no, know, not just the words, but the music. I think the music is one thing. I know it's a literary podcast, but the music is, is, no, uh, no, please. it's yeah, no, is, 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 is telling so much of the, is obviously it's doing so much of the work in a musical uh, and telling the story. It, it, it's got subtext, but also just literally, it's scoring our emotions and our, our experience in a way. I don't think there's anyone who, who did it as well. I put those two together, really. All right. That's all for our Sondheim episode. Thank you to Rob for joining us. And as always, thank you to Adam Baer for our music and to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. Thank you listeners for reading and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Um, and please also tweet us at LitCenturyPod or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week.